we see that Jesus understood that there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality in the spiritual realm. Either you're on the narrow road with God leading to life, or you're on the broad road of destruction leading to eternal damnation. Either you are building your house upon the words of Jesus, or you're the foolish builder building your house uh, not upon his word. But there is no in-between. You're either wise or you're foolish. You're either on the wide road or on the narrow road. The Apostle Paul is going to do something very similar today in Romans chapter 6. He's going to tell you that, guess what? You belong to a spiritual realm. You belong in a spiritual realm, in a spiritual world, where either sin is your master or God is your master. Everyone in this room is a slave to a spiritual master. There is no such thing as personal autonomy that we hear so much about in today's culture. None of us exist outside of the spiritual realm. We're all part of an ongoing spiritual war, and everyone serves a spiritual master. And here's why that's important for you today. Because not every master takes you to the same destination. When sin is your master, it leads you to death. And when God is your master, he leads you to eternal life. Who you grant authority to in your life, who you grant permission to speak wisdom and truth and right and wrong into your life, ultimately determines where you will spend eternity. Folks, it's more than just what football team you root for today. There's a more important eternal question today, and that is this. Who is your spiritual authority in your life? Now, Paul has to address this because in chapter 6, he's accused two times of exalting grace to such an extent that he actually encourages sin. And what it means by that is Paul talks about God's grace in such a wonderful way that he anticipates the accusation in return. Well, Paul, it sounds like you're saying, since grace is so great, why don't we just sin? I mean, 6-1, the more we sin, the deeper grace gets. So we get to see a God's side, God, a side of God that no one else gets to see. Or, or we can sin because we do have grace. We're not under the law. We're not under the old regime. We're under a new regime, a regime of grace. And so if we're under grace, then we might as well gratify our flesh. Because we're not under the law anymore. We're no longer trying to strive for morality. We're just under this umbrella of grace where everything is forgiven. And so why not sin? And Paul had to address these accusations in chapter 6. We looked at one of them last week where Paul said, By no means, by no means should the believer sin in order to see God's grace at a deeper level. Believer, don't you know that you're joined to Jesus? That you have died to sin? And that through Jesus' historical death, you now have the significance of that, and you have died to sin. You've been crucified the flesh. You've been buried with Jesus, and you have been raised to new life. So why would you go back to the old life? Why do you desire to go back to sin if you have died and been buried and raised with Jesus? If the same power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, why would you desire to surrender that privilege and go back to sin? This week we're going to see that he's going to say not so much that we're being set free to sin, but this week it's going to be you were set free to sin, but you were also enslaved to God. Because remember, there is no such thing as personal autonomy in the spiritual realm. There is no such thing as neutral ground. There is no such thing as abstaining when it comes to spiritual war. There is evil and darkness, and there is God and beauty and holiness. And you're either on this side or you're on that side. You're on the narrow road or you're on the wide road. 
You're either a wise builder or you're a foolish builder. You either have God as your master or you have sin as your master. And we're going to see today that when you believe, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are transferred out of this side, the wide, the foolish, and the master of sin, and you are put into the realm of, of righteousness, eternal life, and God as your master. If I do my job well today, you see on the top of your bulletin, I'm going to show you out of Romans 6, that as former slaves to sin, believers have been enslaved to righteousness that produces sanctification resulting in eternal life. I'll say it again, as former slaves of sin, believers have been enslaved to righteousness that produces sanctification resulting in eternal life. And I like Douglas Moo the way he says chapter 6. The first half tells you you've been set free from sin. The second half says, but you're not free to sin now. You have been set free from sin, but not free to go ahead and sin some more. So let's jump into our first point today, and I want to show you this accusation that's brought against Paul. This is going to be very similar to, to two weeks ago. We saw a very similar accusation, and I want to start at verse 14. Paul gives this statement in verse 14. He says, For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this goes back to the last week's sermon. Last week's sermon, he told us in verse 12, Don't let sin reign in your body. Verse 13, Don't offer your parts of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but offer yourself to God. And the reason Paul can command you to offer yourself to God is because sin is no longer your master. You're no longer under the law. You're now under what, church? You're under grace. So if you're going to be under grace, then this grace that you live in is an empowering grace that should empower you for the first time in your life to honor and respect God. Sin does not rule over us because you are under grace, not under law. But what a wonderful statement that is. Paul ex anticipates the, the Romans that are reading this or Jewish, uh, Jewish men of the, of the same town to anticipate, to ask this question. They're going to accuse him of overstating grace. They're going to accuse him of exalting grace so much that it actually encourages someone to sin. So after the wonderful promise that through Jesus, sin is no longer your master, you're now under grace, you're in God's household, you're striving for righteousness, you're heading towards eternal life, Paul anticipates this question based on his mentioning of the law. He says, what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Paul anticipates the reader to almost accuse him of saying that when we're not under the law, that Paul is literally just throwing out all of the moral expectations of God. That, that Paul is literally saying the law has no purpose in Christianity anymore. We're no longer under the law. We are strictly under grace. And if you take that at face value, you could see how someone could say this. Paul, are you saying that all of the moral expectations, all of the moral conduct that God has revealed is now useless? Are you saying that he no longer has moral expectations for your people? And if you are saying that, should we just sin then? If God doesn't have moral expectations, why not gratify the flesh? It's the best of both worlds. I can satisfy myself, and I can also have the grace of God to forgive me. I can live one way, 50% of my life, and then 50% of my time, come back to God. That's the accusation that's being made here. Is Paul, are you sure that you want to throw out the law? And Paul says, absolutely not. Because when Paul speaks of the law back in verse 14... 
he's talking about the law and the era of Adam. You remember in chapter 5, there's, there's the era of Adam and then there's the era of Jesus. We were born into Adam, where sin and death reign, and where the law is used ultimately to, to, um, to handcuff us and to, to condemn us. The law was given so that we would truly know how much we had transgressed God. So in the era of Adam, before Jesus came, one of the purposes of the law was to tell you how unworthy you were before God. And Paul is saying, now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has died for us, and we've been buried with him, and we've been raised with him, and we've been forgiven, now that the penalty of sin has been paid, and the power of sin has been released, now that that has happened, we're no longer under the condemning law. We can get rid of the condemning law. Now you know what the law becomes? The law in the New Testament, with the, power of Jesus, with the power of the Spirit, actually becomes a rubric of how we become more Christ-like. See, the law is not bad in itself. The law is not bad or evil or wrong. The law is actually beautiful and good. But when the law is in the hands of sin, sin uses it to condemn and curse you. But when the law is in the hands of the Holy Spirit, it is used to sanctify you, to change you, to transform you, to make you look more like God. The Ten Commandments are there to do much more than just say, you need to be forgiven. They're also there to transform you, to where when you accept Jesus, you stop lying. You start honoring your parents. You stop coveting your neighbor's stuff. You get rid of adulterous thoughts. So yes, in the Old Testament, in the hands of sin, the law was a big tutor that condemned us. But in the hands of the Holy Spirit is a rubric on how God makes you into his image. You're not under the condemning uh, power of the law in the hands of sin anymore. You are now in the empowering grace of God that transforms you through the law. It's beautiful and it's good and makes you look more and more like Jesus. And that's what Paul is trying to say. That's why he says, absolutely not. Paul is not throwing out the law. He's throwing out the condemnation of the law. He's throwing out the old way the law used to be used. And he's going to explain that to us here. And so our first point this morning is for us to understand that Paul is not teaching that you can sin because you're under grace. You cannot sin because you're under grace. So just understand that when you are unified with Jesus, when you are buried and crucified and you are raised with him, while sin may not be your master, sin is also not approved. And now he's going to explain what he means by that. Look at verse 16. We have a principle of slavery and obedience. Verse 16. Do you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? What is Paul saying here? Well, first of all, if you take your finger at verse 16, don't you know that? Paul is letting you know that what he's getting ready to teach you is not complicated. It's not a secret behind a, a, a closed door. This is elementary teaching of the Christian faith. What Paul is getting ready to teach you in this verse right here is not something that is high-level ivory tower. This is something that he expects the church at Rome to already know. He says, don't you know? And he's saying that rhetorically. You should already know this, Roman Christians, that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey. What is Paul saying here? Well, notice what he says, if you offer yourselves. If you offer yourselves. Folks, the spiritual master you have is actually chosen by you. 
If you offer yourself to sin, sin is going to become your what? Master. Sin is going to become your master. Selfless surrender to sin is going to result in slavery to sin. That's what it's saying here. Whatever you obey, if you wake up every day and you obey your sinful passions and your sinful desires, and you wake up wanting to to gratify yourself and to glorify yourself and to make yourself happy to the demise of everyone, including the Creator, if that is your mindset every day, then sin has become your master. Rebellion against the Creator has become your controlling force in your life. So don't sit here and, and, and blame anyone other than this. If you offer yourself... If you offer yourself, you actively are yielding yourself to a way of life, to a lifestyle, and to a pattern. You chose to obey it, and you ultimately picked your master. Now, some of you are going to say in the slave language, I thought slaves were normally caught at war, or they were purchased. Well, there's also an understanding of slavery in the first century in Roman civilization, that if a man or a woman found himself in hardship, with no house and no food and nowhere to go, he could voluntarily, voluntarily make himself a slave and go find himself a master. And what value comes with getting a master? You're going to get a house over your head. You're going to get an opportunity to work for food. You may even get an opportunity to work and buy back your freedom. It's kind of like the same way we have jobs nowadays. Ultimately, if you want to get yourself out of a financial crisis, you have to go to WORK. You have to go to what? To work. So and when we get into slavery talk here, when it says you are the slave of the one you obey, don't think of these as captured slaves of war or, or bought or traded slaves. Think about an individual who has to decide, I have nowhere to go, and I need to find somewhere to surrender myself to for purpose, identity, direction. And the sad reality, folks, we're born with this nature that doesn't automatically choose to surrender to God. We're born with a nature that automatically thinks sin is the master we should choose. So you know where you find your purpose before you find God? You find it in your sin. You know where you find your identity before you find God? You find it in your sin. You know where you find the direction of your life? You find it in your sin. Could be greed, it could be adultery, it could be gambling, it could be pride, it could be uh, gossip, it could be whatever sin or whatever idol you have in your life. Folks, before you find God, that is your master. And it's your master because every day you wake up and you yield yourself to it. You may not like it. You may say, I want to be set free. I don't want to have this gambling problem anymore. But when push comes to shove, your desire to gamble will always be greater than your desire to leave it. You may wake up every day and say, I don't want to be a prideful person. I don't want to judge people anymore. But before Jesus... You know that that feeling you get with pride is so much better than the feeling you get wanting to leave it. See, that's what it means when it says sin is your master. It means that every day you yield yourself to this sinful gratification that, that, that you think is your identity, your purpose, and your direction. And then look what he says here. He says there's only two different masters that you can have. He says either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to what, church? righteousness you see the 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 two here remember wise foolish narrow broad here we go there's only two masters that you can surrender your spiritual life to it's either going to be sin rebellion against god and his creation or it's going to be obedience leading to righteousness i've preached two weeks on what it means for sin to be your master 
If you want to know more about sin being your master, you can watch those. Let me summarize it by this. When sin is your master, rebellion against God's ways and wills for the purpose of self-gratification, worship, or advancement is your purpose and drive. Sin looks to please oneself at all costs, even dishonoring God. So that's one path you can take. But let me be the, 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 the warning, the voice of warning. If, if sin is your master, where is he taking you? Leading to what? Death. You may think it's going to please you and provide for you forever. It's not. Your sin will ultimately get you by and get you through. And it'll always be this never fulfilling pursuit of just needing a little bit more of it. A little bit more pride, a little bit more pride, a little bit more pr If I just had a little bit more of this sin, then I would be content. And you're going to do that your whole life. You're going to be on this rat wheel of, of, of sin where you always feel you're one turn away from being fulfilled. And you know what happens? Is you're always one turn away until you run out of turns. And then you stand before a holy and just God. And the, and the judgment you're going to receive that day is eternal damnation. Because you spent your whole life running a rat wheel called what? Sin. And it's just one more turn away. It's just one more day of it. It's just one more week of it. It's just one more opportunity, and I'll be content and I'll walk away, God. But your desire for one more will always be greater than your desire for no more. And that lifestyle of, of one more being greater than no more ultimately leads to death. It leads to eternal separation and damnation from God. Because what your sin is, a replacement of God. You are making yourself God, or you're making something else God. That's why it's called sin. But the other master you see here, now, my Bible scholars out there are going to say, well, if one is sin, I bet the other one is going to be grace. Notice what Paul does here that makes my job a little more detailed this morning. He says either one master is sin leading to death, or it is of obedience leading to righteousness. Well, what in the world does Paul mean obedience? We expect to see the word grace. If I was a gambling man, and I'm not, I would have bet a lot of my money on the fact that the two masters are sin and grace. It started in chapter 5, it's went through chapter 6, I would expect it right here in this verse. But Paul does not say that. He says of obedience. What is the obedience Paul's talking about? Well, I preached this about three or four months ago, Romans 1.5. It says, through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all Gentiles. Paul is saying that God has sent out apostles to bring about the conversion of lost people and the maturity of the believers for all people all over the world. The obedience of the faith is the conversion of the lost and it's the maturity of the believing. That's what it is. So if you, if you have obedience of the faith, it doesn't mean that you have good works. It doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. It doesn't mean that you've done something right in terms of earning salvation. That was completely destroyed in chapter 4. What obedience to the faith is this, is that you've heard the gospel, you've understood the gospel, and you've obeyed the gospel. That's what it's going to mean. Obedience of the faith. He says it in Romans 16. He opens the book, 1-5. Now listen to how he closes the book in 16-26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God, to advance the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Why was Paul called the, the apostle of the Gentiles? Because he was sent to what? Lead them in salvation 
and mature them in sanctification. Remember what he did in the book of Acts? He went through preaching Jesus. People got saved. They formed churches. And then what did he do on his way back? He would backtrack his steps in order to strengthen those. Obedience to the faith means that you have been converted through the gospel and you are matured through the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is this. You have two masters. Either that sinful desire that you've had since day one in your life or you can pick a new master today. And the way you pick a new master is it starts with obedience. Obedience to the only message that can change your life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the obedience to the faith that ultimately will change your life. And look what he says, this obedience to the faith. That's how I determine it. I can, I can show you in Romans. I just did. But when you obey the gospel, look where it's going to take you. Leading to what? Righteousness. Now, if death was eternal separation and damnation, then the way he's using righteousness right here is that eternal right standing with God. So when you get off your rat wheel called obedience to the gospel and you're running that wheel your whole life, and that wheel stops, and it's time for you to stand before God, guess what? You're not going to receive eternal damnation. You're going to receive a right standing with God. All because you heard the gospel, you understood the gospel, and you what? Believed. See, you have a master, and you probably have heard the gospel many times in your life. There's been many of me in your life that have stood before you and said this, aren't you tired of the just one more, but not the no more? Aren't you tired of that life? And don't you want to have God change your life? And all you have to do is obey the faith. All you have to do is obey what God has said in the gospel. Well, pastor, what did he say in the gospel? He says, first, admit that you're a sinner. Let's not complicate this. Let's just use vacation Bible school. The first thing in the obedience of the faith is you admit that you're a sinner. And what is the B, church? We have to, come on, VBS workers, we have to believe. You have to admit you're a sinner, and you have to believe that Jesus died for you. And the last thing you have to do is you have to confess and commit your life to him. So how do you pick his master? How do you make God your master? How do you get on the, the narrow road? How do you get on the wise foundation? How do you get the good master leading to eternal life? You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ died for you. And you confess and commit your life to him. And now all of a sudden your destination is not death. Your destination is what? Righteousness. Praise be to God. You know, my wife was born in California. I always joke with her that I think she's a Closet Raiders fan. And uh, she'll never tell me if she is, uh, but I think she is. And so let's just theoretically say she is. My kids would have a voluntary decision they could make. They could root for mom's team or they could root for dad's team. All right? Now, I heard a funny post online that said this. It's pretty sad that grown adults allow a decision they made when they were 11 destroy their lives. For everyone who's a sports fan, picks a team when they're 11 and then allows that team to completely disappoint them the rest of their life. And it's a pretty funny joke. Now, we, my kids are the, the, the Israel of, of sports fans right now. They were born into an age where the Royals won the World Series and the Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey's dating Taylor Swift, all right? They're born into this golden age of, of Kansas Cityans, okay? Kansas City is all over the map, all right? But it's funny that people will pick the team they're going to root for and then allow it. But folks, Paul's not being funny when he talks about you picking a spiritual master. Because while the Chicago Bears may never win a Super Bowl for 50 years, that's nothing compared to eternal damnation from God. 
I don't care how sad your team is or how sad your allegiance is to your school. I don't care how much they disappoint you. The greatest disappointment is when you stand before the Creator and He shows you every time in your life that someone like me stood before you and said, sin doesn't have to be your master. There doesn't have to be one more time. There actually can be no more time if you will hear and you'll understand and you'll believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for you. And, and, and I keep saying praise be to God because I've read these verses all week. Look what Paul says in verse 17. The reason I'm saying that is because I know what Paul says next. In the midst of his discussion, Paul cannot help himself because he understands how wretched he was. Just so you know, Paul killed Christians. Paul was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. Paul thought his works would ultimately save him. And then he ultimately realized that his, his self-glorifying works was nothing but sinful, prideful actions. And in verse 17, in the midst of this, he says what? But thank God that. Boy, what three words you could say today as you walk out of here. But thank God. But thank God that while sin was my master, I heard the gospel and I believed it. Thank God that I was living in an habitual lifestyle of disrespect, and yet he loved me enough to provide a message of how to get out of it. But thank God. May we not overlook that today, even though it's probably the easiest thing for me to explain to you. May we not overlook the fact that, God, that Paul credits God as the ultimate provider and source of our salvation. And what we're going to do in this third point, I'm going to show you that what Paul does in verses 17 and 18 is he gives a, a, a testimony of a believer. He gives a testimony. So if you're lost in here, I'm about to walk you through what God has done in my life and what God has done in about 123 people's lives in here. If you are a believer, may this, may this stir your heart and remind you and motivate you to, to gratitude so that you can overcome gratification of the flesh. Look what he says here in verse 17. But thank God that, well, what? What did he do? Although you used to be slaves of sin. So everything I've said about sin and selfishness and gratification, that's where you were. You know the sins you had in your life. You know the idols you carried. We don't need to re-preach it. But even when you were in the state of slavery to sin, God gave you a message you could obey. Do you understand that if God never preached the gospel, you would have had nothing to obey? You didn't write your salvation story. You didn't write the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You didn't write, while we were yet sinners, God showed his love that he sent his son to die for us. You did not write those. That was God's will. That was God's desire. That was God's decision. And it says, while you were rebelling and disrespecting him and dishonoring him, Thanks be to God that there was a message that you could obey. So you go from a slave to sin, and the second thing you do in a testimony is you obey from the heart, the pattern of teaching. You see that word obey? I've already told you what that means. Obey is to hear and understand and accept. It's to admit that you're a sinner. It's to believe that Jesus died, and it's to confess your life to him. Last week I used the imagery of Vince marrying Ashley Vince pledged his love, his loyalty, and his willingness to long suffer with his bride. And when you come to Jesus, you say, Jesus, I'm pledging and I'm committing my love to you, my loyalty to you, and I'm willing to long suffer with you. And that's the response you get to that message you obeyed. So you're a slave to sin, okay? Then you have a salvation point where you obey from the heart. Notice it's from the heart. 
We, we hear with our ears, we understand with our mind, and we pledge our loyalty with our heart. And then what did you obey? That pattern of teaching to which you were handed over to. That pattern of teaching. The source that you obeyed was a teaching. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It should be what every church is preaching and serving and sharing around the world. It's the gospel that you obeyed. It wasn't man's wisdom. It wasn't the ten steps to get yourself out of hell. It was the gospel that God so loved you, he sent his son to live a life you could never live, to die a death you deserved, so that his payment he paid on the cross, the blood he shed and the price he paid, redeemed you and got you out of sin and its mastery over you and into grace and righteousness into God's house. It's the gospel that you believed. Now some of you are saying, well, Pastor Jacob, what is this pattern of teaching? This, that's a weird phrase. Once again, Paul makes my life a little more difficult today. Pattern of teaching. Well, first thing we know it's about a pattern is this. This is not original to Paul. We should assume that every Christian preacher, evangelist, uh, apologist in the first century, this is the normal pattern of teaching. You are wretched. God is holy. He paid your price. Receive it and be redeemed. We have to assume it. It's a pattern. We also know that the word pattern means typos or a type. We know that Jesus in chapter 5 was our type. Adam was a type of Jesus. Jesus ultimately is the pattern in which all of creation will be molded into. What does Romans 8 say? So you may be conformed to the image of Jesus, so he will be the first among many what? Brothers. You obeyed the image of Jesus, the teaching of the pattern. And thirdly, I think the word pattern also means this. It emphasizes the molding and shaping and transforming power of the teaching. Alright, so when you make jello, you can pour jello into a pattern. Okay, maybe you want little minions. Maybe you want little football players. Or maybe you want flowers. Okay, maybe you want goldfish. I don't know what you want. You pour your warm jello into a pattern, into a mold. You stick it into the refrigerator. Three hours later, you snap your fingers, you pull it out. When you pull that out of the mold, you now have a jello what? Goldfish, flower, guitar, whatever you wanted. And folks, when you give your lives over to this teaching, when you give your lives over to the gospel, here's the amazing thing. One day, the gospel will hand you back over to God in the image of Jesus. You start in the image of Adam. <laughs> Sin is your master, and you're pretty wretched when God finds you. But you believe this gospel, and he puts you into this pattern, into this mold, into this transforming message. And you know what? In the very end, we're going to be spit out to look a lot like Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here. You see how we switch ownerships? Look what he says here. Another phrase that kind of baffled me this week that makes my job a little more difficult. You obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over to. Wait a minute. You would expect a teaching to be handed over to us. You would expect Paul to say, you obeyed the gospel in which I have given you. Now you, are, now you hold the gospel. But it's not the gospel that's being handed over. No, it's you being handed over to the what? To the gospel. You obeyed from your heart this pattern of Christ's likeness, the teaching of the church, to which you've now been handed over to. And if you think about a slave, a slave has ownership papers. And when they switch masters, the old master has to take those ownership papers and he has to give them to the what? The new master. And when you accepted Jesus, your ownership of sin was no more. And you were transferred. You were handed over to a new form of teaching. Not one of rebellion, but one of respect. Not one of idolatry, but one of honor and worship. You were transferred. You were handed over. Your ownership was changed. 
See, Paul makes my heart difficult because he's using a lot of slavery terminology. You were a slave to sin, but you heard the gospel and you believed it. And in exchange, your ownership papers, you yourself, was handed over to the message in which you believed. To where now grace has control over you. Righteousness is now your motivation. And your destination is ultimately eternal life. What a powerful verse. Paul is not talking about passing the baton of preaching from one church to another. He's talking about handing every believer from sin as its master to God as his master. To the gospel. To repent and believe and be changed. And then he says it in verse 18. He says, now that you've switched, now that your ownership has switched, guess what? Your allegiance needs to switch. You have been set free from sin. Your papers have been handed over. You're set free from sin, and you have been enslaved to what, church? To righteousness. And if you're a slave to righteousness, you have no business sinning. And isn't that what he was accused of in verse 15? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Paul says, absolutely not, because you're enslaved to righteousness. And here's the nice thing about being enslaved to righteousness, is that for the first time in your life, you can honor God. You were handed over, and you have a new master. You're set free and enslaved to righteousness. And as a slave, one doesn't have a right to refuse who he serves and who he honors. Slaves willingly surrender to the master's authority in order to benefit the master. A slave does not, the slave does the, the wishes of the master. The slave obeys the master. The slave honors its master. So if your master is grace and righteousness, that's what you strive for. To be like God. Godliness and holiness. Sanctification. And then Paul says in verse 19, he, he tells us why he has to use a slave analogy. He says, I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. Look, humans have a broken mind because of sin, and sometimes the best way we learn is an imagery. I don't have a lot of illustrations today because the imagery Paul gives me is this. You were born as a slave to sin. You, you surrendered your life to sin every day. Sin held your ownership papers. Then you obeyed, and those papers were transferred over to the gospel, to grace and righteousness. And that's the imagery Paul wants you to leave. He says, I have to use this imagery because the weakness of your flesh. Because sometimes you just don't understand until someone draws you a what? A picture. But the danger and reason Paul has to give this caution here, I'm using a human analogy, and Pastor Calvin will tell you this too, the most dangerous thing about using an analogy or an illustration is someone stretching it too far. Or someone reading into it something you did not mean. And some of you may be sitting there saying, man, being a slave to God, that makes God sound like he's a horrible person. Because I grew up and I went and I read my history books and every slave master in America's history is known as an evil person. And so since God is my master, who would want slaves? Slavery is wrong. But what we've seen already today is slavery in this context is voluntary slavery for the, really the benefit of the slave. He needs a house. He needs an opportunity. He needs food. And he voluntarily yields himself to a master because he knows the master is willing to provide for him. But the caution, folks, today is this. While the metaphor is accurate in its exclusivity of Jesus and our allegiance to him, as a slave, I belong to Jesus and no one else. It is not accurate if you think that Jesus has a heavy yoke on my life. He doesn't. He says his yoke is what? Easy. Yeah. If you think that God has some angry hand upon my life and he's just forcing me to do things I don't want to do, you've missed what God is. Rather, he gives me this empowerment to where what I want I actually can do.
And we really need to think of not a service as some captivity, but rather as liberating us from our sinful natures. So I think John Stott did a good job there of saying, listen, yes, slavery is a great picture day. You belong to sin, now you belong to God, and your papers were transferred, but don't read too much into it, because God's yoke in your life is light. His hand is gentle, all right? And really what he does in your life is liberating you from the spiritual death that you had before him. And that's why he tells you in verse, the end of verse 19, he gives us, for just as you offered your parts of yourself as slaves of impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. Paul says this, now that you have a new master, serve him the same way you used to serve your old master. So think about the intensity you used to pursue your sin. Just think about it. Think about how much you long to look at pornography. Think about how much you would arrange your life to make sure you could do it, you wouldn't get caught. Think about how often you did it, how much you enjoyed it, how much you pursued it, how much you could never get enough of it. Think about all that drive, and what does Paul say? To the same, if not greater intensity you used to serve pornography, you now serve God. I don't know what your sin is. Maybe it was greed. Maybe you woke up every day to make sure you had more money when you went to bed than when you went, and you would do anything to make sure you had more money. You would take advantage of someone, you would sell something, you'd rip someone off, you would steal something. I don't know what it is, but whatever intensity you used to pursue your sin, Paul says now, you use that same intensity to serve God. Christianity is not a let go and let God. Christianity is a strong passion and pursuit to be like Jesus Christ. So I've laid out on your bulletin here, I know I didn't have time to give you guys all these nice S, S words here, but you have them on your bulletin. This is what a testimony is. I was a slave to sin, but I obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching called the gospel. And it handed me over from sin to the gospel. It set me free from sin and enslaved me to righteousness. And yes, this is an accurate description of my exclusivity, but it fails because I don't want you to think God mistreats me or I have bad motivation to serve him. And what I do the rest of my life now that I have been transferred to God's, to God's ownership is I serve righteousness and I seek sanctification. The illustration I think about this is, you know, when you remodel a home, I tore out all my basement. Um, I had a friend that had a dump trailer. We loaded up all the old stuff out of my basement. We took it to the dump, and we dump it at the dump, and we go home. Well, when it comes time to rebuild the basement, you know what I don't do? I don't go back to the dump to get my old material to put it back up in my house. I go get something what? New. Folks, when Jesus says, the same way you used to have old ways of your life, you used to offer your bodies as weapons of unrighteousness. Now offer them to your new master. What he's saying is this. Don't rebuild your life out of the city dump. Go get the new stuff from the spirit that's in you. Go get the love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, self-control. Don't go back to the pride, angriness, bitterness, greed. Alright, i got to keep going. We're almost done. Hang with me. The final punch. This is very short here. I think... Paul does one final punch to try to woo your heart to surrender to God and to get out of sin today. Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. You didn't have any worry about honoring God. You were completely free from even thinking about pleasing God. But then he says, so what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things was death. You know your old life? Let me ask you this, Christian. What things out of your old life, Christian, are you still proud of? Because everything before Jesus is tainted with my sin. 
Really, the last thing I want any of you do, to do in this room is to know the pre-Jesus Jacob. Some of the most humiliating stories of my life is the pre-Jesus Jacob. It's because sin was my master. And to be real honest with you, there's not much in my early life that I am proud of today. Because once you taste the gospel, and you see the gospel, and you experience the gospel, then you just realize how wretched and shameful the wings you used to do are. I mean, believer, are you proud of the way you used to be before Jesus changed your life? You want to go back to being that person? Let's do that. Next Sunday, let's just all show up and be the pre-conversion people we really are. I bet money will go missing. I bet half of you won't be here. And I bet half the men may be sitting by the wrong woman. We're not proud of who we were before Jesus. That's Paul's final punch in this whole message of Romans 6 is this. Just go ask a Christian, are you proud of who you were before Jesus? And I bet the answer you're going to hear is this. I'm completely shameful of the sin I used to be in. And then he says this. He says this. But now that you've been set free from sin and you've become enslaved to God, you know you are proud of your fruit. You are proud of the things you're producing. You want to know why? Because they're sanctifying. They make you more godly. They make you more holy. They make you more beautiful. They make you more trustworthy. You are proud of it. And guess what? The outcome, it's eternal life now. And you can just see the parallelism. Slaves of sin, fruit of shame, outcome is death. This side, here's the two choices. Slave to God, fruit of sanctification, outcome eternal life. Folks, there's two ways. The wide, the narrow, the foolish, the wise. The slave of sin and the slave of God. And then he ends with a verse that many of you memorize when you're in VBS. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you go to eternal damnation, it's a wage and it's merited. You earned that wage. You earned it by the 72 years of sinful gratification you chose over glorifying God. Death is a wage you earn, but eternal life is a gift you receive. And that's all we're trying to do as a church today, folks. All we're trying to do is say this, Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve two masters. Since either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and sin. I heard a clip this week where it said, it was talking about different things, and I pull out this phrase, sin only deals in wages of death. What did it say there? When sin is your master, what does it pay you out with? It pays you out with wages of what? Death. All sin knows is death. The, the currency in the life of sin is death. It deals in death. And so the only way to get rid of sin is to give it what its currency is. It's to give it what? Death. The only way to get rid of sin is to give it what it deals in, which is death to it. You will not kill sin until you die with Jesus Christ and you crucify the flesh and you kill the sin that is your master. Because sin only knows death. You ain't going to kill it by good works or trying harder you're not going to kill it by building fences to look godly or having a fake life. The only way to deal with sin is to deal in the only thing it knows, which is death. And that's our offer today. Admit you're a believer, or admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. And God makes his death your death. You die to sin. The penalty and power of sin is done away with. And grace and righteousness comes in, and that is your new master. And that's what I'm challenging you to do today is give sin the only thing it knows, which is death. Pray with me. Heavenly Father.